I want to thank you for worshiping with us today, whether you would say that you are a first-time guest or uh, this is your four, first couple times at the Oaks, or you call the Oaks Church home. Really grateful that you are here as we jump back into our study of Romans. Uh, we have been going through the book of Romans kind of in the fall semester for, I think it's been three years now. So uh, we kind of keep ourselves in several different books of the Bible at a time. And so we're going to be jumping back into Romans 11. Uh, but before I ask you to turn there, I want to take a quick second uh, just to pray together as a church. Father God, we are so thankful that you are faithful. Uh, Lord, your word is ever true. And so as we take this time to study it, to be challenged by it, to be encouraged by it, we know that not a single word within these pages has changed. We know that if we were to update the Bible app in our phone, we wouldn't find new books or different verses, but that your word stands firm. And so, though the world around us may rock and reel, you are our anchor. You ground us. You are the God above us. You are the God that is with us. And right now, as we open your word, you are the God who is among us. May we glorify you as such. May we be faithful to you as you have been to us. May we display that as we seek to hear, open our hearts, and to learn from you. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. You can go ahead and find Romans chapter 11. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, that's okay. All of the verses that you will need will be on the screen behind me, but we also would love to give you one as a gift from us to you, and you can pick one of those up at the Connect table as you head out this afternoon. Now, as you find Romans 11, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been somewhere that was just far better than you expected it to be? I mean, a place that, you know, the, the photos on Airbnb couldn't do it justice. Like, once you got there, you're just like, this is amazing. Now, unfortunately, often our experience is the opposite, right? And we're like, oh, man, this place is worse than the photos looked. But, I mean, the first time that I really experienced that uh, was in March of 2012 when Abby and I got married, and we went to Montego Bay, Jamaica for our honeymoon. And I had never been anywhere that nice. We went to an all-inclusive resort. And, you know, the water is this beautiful emerald green. The resort's right there next to the beach. There's a mountain beside you. The, the restaurants were just like three-course meal, just the best food I ever had. Everything about this vacation, like, was just, it was just, just the best place that I, that we had ever been in our lives. And so on the last day, we are like, we've got to get back here. Uh, we've got to do whatever we can, maybe several years from now, to get back here. And so I told Abby, uh, whenever we left, I said, I promise that I will bring you back to this place one day. Yeah, so, wow. <laughs> it was mostly groans from husbands, so yes, we, we're in this together. I promise, I promise we'll do this again one day. And so we said for our five-year anniversary. So we just began to save and, you know, with the aim of getting back there at five years. Well, five years go by of, of us saving and dreaming. And at that point, we're in the middle of year one of church planting in Cincinnati. We're still new. We had just gotten here. We're expecting our first baby. And so then conversations happen. And I'm like, hey, I promise we'll still do this, but maybe 10 years. So now this, this dream, this promise that I've made is now a decade in the making. 
And 10 years go by. We're, we're, getting, we're getting closer to that 10-year anniversary in March of, of 2022. So at the end of 2021, we're like, all right, does it make sense financially? Can we do it timing-wise? Can we ask one of our parents to come up and watch the kids for a week? Like, how can we make all this work? And finally, we just pull the trigger, and we call a travel agent, get everything set in stone. March of 2022, we're going to make it happen. I'm going to keep my promise. Well, unfortunately, that week comes and a stomach virus hit our entire family that just totally decimated us. We're not talking about tummy ache. We're talking like violent stomach virus. If you've been there, you know what it's like, right? Uh, it's the bowls that you have in your cabinet that now have an X on them because now they're used for one thing, and I'm not going to say it from a stage, but it, you know, it's when you, yeah. So, so, so we're like, what do we do? Uh, you know, the, the week didn't seem like anybody was getting better. We're, we're two days out from going on an airplane and asking our parents to come watch our two viral kids, knowing that they will inevitably catch whatever they have, and us not knowing if we're still going to have this by the time we get on a plane. And so we had travel insurance, and I'm like, all right, if somebody gets sick, it was, it was a Friday, and I, I was like, we got to make a decision in, in 24 hours. I said, if someone gets sick after noon tomorrow, after 12 then, you know, let me know, and I'll just call the travel agent, and, and so Abby's like, okay, that, that makes sense. Uh, so I'm working at my office on Saturday trying to wrap up the sermon, you know, not knowing if I'm going to be sitting on a beach or in my office come the next Monday, and I get a text message from Abby at 1230, got to cancel the trip, the kids are still sick, and I'm like, oh, so I reluctantly call a travel agent, I'm like, hey, we got to reschedule, so we bump it to a couple months out, and so now it's May 2022, we're thinking, okay, like, this is the time. Uh, well, this was still during, you know, the issues with COVID impacting flights and flight crews and pilot shortages and all this kind of stuff. So it's Sunday night. We're supposed to get on a plane on Monday morning. Sunday night, I get a text message from our airline saying, your flight has been canceled. Not rescheduled, not delayed. Your flight has just been canceled. And then my, my desires to keep this decade-long promise are dashed. Now, why do I tell you that story? to show you that we can't always keep our promises. With our limited authority, with our finite power, there are promises that we make to other people that we just simply can't keep despite our best efforts. You have been hurt by people that you loved dearly making a promise to you that they didn't have the ability to keep. And how sad is it that sometimes Whenever we read the promises of Scripture, whenever you hear someone speak from a stage like me about the promises of God, you bring that same view of the human inability to keep a promise into your view of God and wonder, can he really? Will God really keep his promises? Can God really forgive sin like mine? Is God really powerful enough? And the message of Romans 11, 1 through 10, is that because God is faithful, His promises will never fail. Because God is faithful, He will preserve His people to the end. Put your own name there if it is some source of comfort for you. That God's promises will never fail. That God will preserve His people to the end because God is faithful. Now, let me bring you back up to speed as to where we're at in the book of Romans. Rome uh, was this, you know, uh, place, this big city where, you know, it was just kind of the, the center of the day. 
And Paul, the apostle, was writing to the church in Rome about 60 years after the resurrection and ascension of Christ back to heaven. Now, the unique thing about the, the church in Rome is that it was not started, it wasn't planted by an apostle. Uh, what likely happened from reading through Acts 2 is that there were some people from Rome that were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Whenever the Holy Spirit fell, Peter preached his first sermon, and those people being converted, called to Christ, and then filled with the Holy Spirit, went back to Rome, and some unknown missionaries started the church in Rome, and it, and it became this thriving church. Well, now Paul is writing for a few different reasons. Uh, Paul is writing this letter for one reason, because he wants to take a trip to Spain, and he wants the church in Rome to kind of be his home base, uh, to raise financial support, to be kind of his uh, support system as he's sent off. You're also going to notice in this letter that he's handling some big theological issues to ground the church theologically, perhaps because there wasn't, um, you know, this uh, apostolic foundation. And then he's also going to deal with some of the tension that existed between Jewish and Gentile, that is non-Jewish members of the church. And so we're going to see a little bit of that today. Uh, the entire letter could be summarized in Romans 1.16, where it says, uh, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. How do you summarize that? That the gospel of Jesus is good news for all people. Now, I want to show you two facts about God's faithfulness in this text. We're going to take a lot longer on the first one because I think it's uh, going to be a little bit more encouraging, helpful for you, and really kind of provides the context for the second fact. Uh, now, first... What we find in this passage is that God is faithful to keep his promises. God is faithful to keep his promises. And perhaps that's, you know, not revolutionary for you, but how often do we forget that? It's the reason that the question was asked in verse 1 of chapter 11. Let's read it together, verses 1 through 6. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. The first fact about God's faithfulness that we see here is that God is faithful to keep his promises. Now, as I said, Paul begins with a question and we can assume that he is asking this question about God's plan, God's commitment to Israel because of what he just said in Romans 10, 21. Speaking of God, he says, but of Israel, he says, God says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The question that is being asked here by perhaps the Jewish Christians in the church of Rome is, why, why didn't all of the Jews realize that Christ was the fulfillment of all the messianic prophecies? Why weren't they able to look at the tabernacle as God's presence among them and see that it is Christ in John 1.14 
who comes and dwells among us is a better fulfillment of that tabernacle presence? Why didn't they see Christ as the high priest who has come and fulfilled the type of all those sacrifices that had been made before? Why didn't they understand that? Why, why was there, there not this mass conversion of the Jews? They were wondering, why, why are so many Gentiles, people that were raised in you know, this kind of pagan, idolatrous background, flooding into the church and believing this gospel? And here's the bigger question that is being asked here. It's not merely one of you know, theological debate. The real question is, does God keep His promises? Is it, these are God's chosen people. Does God keep His promises? Is there an expiration date on God's divine decrees? And what is Paul going to say? By no means. I ask him, has God rejected His people? By no means. May it never be. Meganoita. Absolutely not. I think it's helpful here, before we go on, to, to see that whenever there is a point of contention among two groups of Christians, that the Scripture prescribes that we, instead of pointing our fingers at one another, that we point to God, that we point to God's Word, that we come together and, and say, okay, how do, how do we resolve this together, as Paul is here inviting the church to do? Now, as a good lawyer, what Paul is going to do is he is going to, pro- he's going to proceed to give evidence and proof that God has not rejected His people, but that God is still at work. And the first example that he presents at the end of verse 1 is himself. He says, For I myself am an Israelite. I am proof that God has not given up on Israel. I am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He's going to give two, maybe three proofs here that God has not given up on his people. But let's consider the first here. Uh, Paul is presenting himself as exhibit A of God's faithfulness. He's saying, I, I grew up an Israelite practicing th- these, these religious traditions and rituals and customs that ultimately are fulfilled in Christ. I, I see what God has done to be faithful to his people. Not only that, he says, I'm a descendant of Abraham. Now, why would he make that distinction? Because the promises that are being called into question here at the beginning of chapter 11 are the promises that were made in Genesis 12, 1 through 3 to Abraham. Do you remember what they were? Before Abraham even had a child, God made this great promise saying, I will make you a great people. I will make you a great nation, Israel. And through your lineage, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And Paul is saying, I'm a fulfillment of that promise. Not only that, God in his glory has chosen to make me an apostle to the Gentiles so that I am a part of all the families of the earth hearing this good news. God is faithful. And then he he says, I'm also a part of the tribe of Benjamin. So he's able to trace his lineage back to one of the 12 tribes. It's probably worth noting here that of the 12 tribes, Benjamin and Judah were the ones that were in southern Israel that remained faithful to God when uh, the kingdom of Israel split under the reign of Rehoboam. So he's saying, I I can trace God's faithfulness to his people from myself to Abraham to the tribe of Benjamin. Now, now let's zoom out a little bit because I believe what Paul has just done is very pastorally given us a timeless principle. By pointing to himself and saying, it might look like God has failed on his promises, 
But as I, as I just kind of take a minute to ponder on the faithfulness of God, what I have found is that God is faithful even when it doesn't look like it. Even when it doesn't feel like it, God is still faithful. Maybe you need to hear that. Maybe there's someone in your life that needs to hear that. I'm reminded of what Jeremiah would write in the book of Lamentations as uh, the Israelites are facing captivity, destruction, bloodshed, brokenness, and he would write these words, but this I call to mind. What do I do in the midst of my despair? But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end, and they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Sometimes we can't fix our problems. <laughs> Most of the time we can't fix our problems, but we can fix our eyes on the faithfulness of God, and that perspective changes everything. That's what Paul has just done. He, he continues to present his second reason. Now going way back into the history books of Israel, about 800 years earlier, he's going to reflect on the life and ministry of the prophet Elijah, which, and I love the life of the prophet Elijah, probably where we're going to be in January of next year for a couple months. Now, if you remember uh, back in 1 Kings 16 through 20, these were dark days for Israel. King Ahab uh, was the king in northern Israel, and he was this wicked guy. Scripture says in 1 Kings 16.33 that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord to anger than all the kings of Israel before him. And his wife Jezebel was just as wicked as he was. But God, in his mercy, sent Elijah. He raised him up, sent him with the word of God. And Elijah, seeing the wickedness of Ahab and knowing God's plan for his people, he confronted Ahab. He confronted Jezebel. Uh, he, he confronted the prophets of Baal and Asherah that numbered 850. And, and in boldness and in obedience to God, one day he says, let's show the people this public spectacle of who the one true God is. You guys say it's Baal. I say it's Yahweh, the king of Israel. Why don't we go up onto Mount Carmel? We'll both make sacrifices. You call out to your false god. I'll call out to, the, to my one true God and whichever God sends fire down from heaven to consume that sacrifice, that's the one true God. That's the one God that's worthy of worship. And so they say, okay, there's one of you, 850 of us. Sounds, sounds great. Well, you know how the story goes. They go up on the top of Mount Carmel, and Elijah's like, you guys go first, give you plenty of time, no big deal. And they're crying out, they're cutting themselves, you know, it's just this, this whole thing. And the sacrifice for Baal just sits there cold. And then Elijah says, all right, you guys have had your time. I'm going to pray. He prays. And in an instant, God rains down fire from heaven that totally consumes the sacrifice, proving that God is victorious, Yahweh, the one true God. Now, this is amazing, right? If you're Elijah, this is like the ministry moment that made you sign up for seminary. This is, this is a big deal. But what happened? Confronting Ahab and Jezebel like this put a target on his head. And so, you know, soon after, he's exhausted from, from putting himself out there. He's, he's kind of anxious about what could happen next. He's, he's fearing for his own life. He even says to God, like, it would be better if you would just take my life. I'm so anxious and worried and discouraged right now. 
And, and that's when God speaks to him in this still small voice. And Elijah says, I'm, I'm alone. I, you know, there's, there's no one else out here with me. I'm, I'm doing this all alone. And then what does God say to Elijah? We find it there in verse 3. Elijah says, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life, verse 4. But what does God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Two things I want you to see here, and then we'll get to like kind of the meat of the application here. First, sometimes your greatest moments of spiritual warfare and discouragement in ministry will be whenever God is doing some of the greatest work through you. So know that. Seek God in that. Don't be surprised by that. Those of you that are leading campus ministries or pouring yourself out to disciple your children or leading here at the Oaks. But, but also look at the comfort that God gives here. He reminds him, you're not alone. There's, there's 7,000 that I've kept for myself that have not bowed the knee to Baal. What is God's cure for Elijah's discouragement? It's the Christian community. I'm saying, brother, you might feel alone, but you are not. Brother, sister, you might feel alone, but you are not. Now, maybe you're wondering, why would, would God relate the life and ministry of Elijah and this remnant to the Jewish Christians in the Roman church a thousand years later? What does the life and ministry of Elijah have to do with them? Everything. It has everything to do with them. Because they could relate, couldn't they? I mean, you know, imagine being in their shoes for a moment, and, you know, you've, you've been waiting for the Messiah. You've been reading all of these prophecies in the book of Isaiah. You look back at what God said in the Garden of Eden, that there would be one who might have his heel crushed, but he would ultimately, or heel bruised, but he would ultimately crush the serpent's head. And you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and Christ comes, and you're like, he's here. He's here. Everyone, look, Christ has come. But then so many of those around you who, who had the same background and upbringing, they, they don't, they're not believing the same. You feel like you're kind of this minority remnant. You've probably experienced this if you've ever gone to a football game that was an away game. So you're the away team going into this football game, and you are cheering for the opposite team of everyone else. Uh, you know, Abby and I, we grew up in Panama City, Florida. We're big Florida State Seminoles fans, but we lived in Louisville while we did seminary. And so there were several Louisville home games where they were playing the Seminoles, and we would go there, and we're wearing garnet and gold in a sea of red and black. And it's, it can be really discouraging, especially if your team is not doing so well. Right? So the other team you know, scores a touchdown, and Cardinal fans are you know, mocking the tomahawk chop or the war chant, and your blood just begins to boil, doesn't it, Jimmy? You know, it's, it's rough. Now, maybe that gives you a, a small picture of, of just how the Jewish Christian in the Church of Rome might have felt like they're estranged from those that they were once closest to. I mean, think about that. Now in Christ, the two, Jew and Gentile, have become one man. That's this beautiful truth of Ephesians 2, the unity that can only be found in the church. 
And yet they, they wrestled with this fact that now they were closer to Gentile believers that had never practiced the Passover than they were their own kinsmen. And, and we get kind of this insight into Paul's heart in Romans 9 whenever he says, my heart breaks over this so much that if I, I'm, I'm full of anguish and great sorrow, if I myself could be accursed that my kinsmen would be saved like I am, I would do it. And yet these Jewish Christians, now their allegiance was pledged to Christ alone. They were wearing a different jersey. They no longer were under the blood of, of goats and calves. The blood of Christ was now upon them. And so, so what, is, what is the hope that Paul would give them? God hasn't given up on his people. God is still with you. There is still a remnant. God is preserving his people even still. And even though it might not look like it, God is still at work. What hope could they have in the midst of this heartbreak? That God is always faithful to his promises. That God does still have a plan for Israel. And although things might look bleak in this moment, there is still reason to believe that God is faithful to his people. And maybe that's good news for you. Christian, I know that sometimes being in this room on Sunday and being in the office or the classroom or the gym or wherever you will be tomorrow morning can feel drastically different. Right, right here, on the most part, most people believe Jesus is king, that Jesus lived, died, and he was resurrected again. But sometimes on Monday... You can feel ostracized. You can feel outnumbered. You kind of feel weird for asking to take a Sunday off. I don't want to work on Sundays. And somebody's calling in and they're like, hey, what? man, I tried to call you like three times at 1030. What were you doing? Like, oh, I, I turned my phone off during that time. Or, or maybe you're not adding to the, to the office gossip. Maybe you feel that lump in your throat whenever the Holy Spirit is kind of nudging you to turn an everyday conversation into an eternally important one. I know that as your pastor, I'm, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for your boldness. I'm praying for you to have kind of this Holy Spirit-empowered awareness of God's presence throughout the day. But also know that Scripture gives you a way to, to think through this. That, yes, even as you'd say, I, I'm a part of the remnant, that God is empowering and preserving the remnant that they might be a part of God's plan for redeeming others in His world. That perhaps even being the remnant as Elijah was can enable you to experience tangibly the faithfulness of God in a way that you would not have experienced it before. I, I love the personal nature that God speaks of the remnant in verse 4. Because this applies to us just the same. What does God reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men. God's saying... I have kept them. I kept them from bowing their knee to Baal. I think that's helpful. Because think about the, the temptations that the remnant in those dark days of Israel would have endured. Think about the religious peer pressure. Think about the inevitable moments of failure that they would have faced. And, and the, the Jewish believer become Christian in Romans 11, would have felt the exact same way. They would have felt this, this pressure around them. There would have been moments that, 
Maybe they were a little weak and they just kind of backed off and pretended like they weren't Christians. What do they cling to in that moment? That God has kept for himself his people, that he is faithful to preserve his people. How did they remain faithful when the world around them was falling apart? Did they have the ability to muster up some courage that others couldn't find? Was it because of their superior effort to other people? No, it was because God's grace kept them from shipwrecking their souls. Consider the phrase in verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Yes, that is speaking of those who would come to faith in Christ in Israel, but it is also speaking of you if you have believed. God will not reject you. And maybe you're wondering, what if it feels like it's taking too long? My struggle with sin in the midst of my wrestling, sanctification feels so hard. What if it takes too long? Your God is eternal. What if my sin feels too great? Isn't it such a blessing that you draw the mercy and grace that you require from an infinite God? You'd say, I'm too weak. Good. Your God is omnipotent, and his power is made perfect where? Right in the middle of your weakness. What hope do we have to cling to? Ed read it earlier. 2 Timothy 11 2, 11 through 13. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. That's a promise. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, yes, he will also deny us. But even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? For he cannot deny himself. Christian, listen to this. God has staked his own reputation of faithfulness on your salvation, your sanctification, and your preservation to the end. Fire will never be cold. Water will never be dry. And God will never fail his promises. It's who he is. And some of you know this firsthand, just like I do, because you've experienced moments of wandering, weeks of wandering, months of wandering, years of wandering, and the pursuing grace of God sought you down and said, not my child. This addiction won't have the last word. This relationship won't have the last word. I will bring you back because God will not reject those whom he foreknew. That God will finish what he started. And if we are faithless, he is faithful. He cannot deny himself because now his Holy Spirit lives in you. Christian, may that be a comfort to you. Father, mother, with a wandering child, may that be a comfort to you leader who's watching, the, the student that one, once confessed faith in Christ, making a shipwreck of their life, may that be a comfort to you, and may you pray this over them. We see here that God is always doing more than meets the eye, isn't he? Elijah says, nothing's happening. <laughs> God, I know that you say that you're faithful. It doesn't feel like it. And what does this show us? God was doing more than meets the eye. That whenever things look bleak, we still have reason to believe that God is at work. We know that he's faithful. Now in verses 5 through 6, we find the consistent theme between the conversion of Paul, 
between the preservation of this remnant through the life and ministry of Elijah and ultimately in the life of every single Christian that is called upon the name of Christ. And what is that consistent theme? The grace of God. That's why Paul then applies it to the church, to the Jews in the church, saying, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Now, this is really important because what Paul is saying here is that anyone who is called upon the name of Christ is being preserved by the grace of God that they first believed. They are chosen by grace. The common denominator is God's undeserved merit to choose sinners like us for salvation. The only way to have a relationship with God is by receiving His grace. And the salvation of the Jews, just like the Gentiles, came through faith in Christ upon His grace made known to us in Christ, us undeserving salvation and Him offering it to us anyways, not because we did anything to earn it. That's why Paul here is going to say, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Now, he's making a logical distinction and not a temporal one. He's not saying like, oh, at one time it was based on works, uh, but it's no longer based on works now. It is based upon grace. What he is saying is no longer should you believe like this. This is a misunderstanding. God has always operated in, in his sovereign choosing by grace alone and not based upon our human effort. Then he defines grace. He's saying if there were any works wrapped up in this, then grace would no longer be grace. Verse 6 is the difference between you viewing God as a loving father or a taskmaster. Verse 6 is the difference between your Christian life being lived out in joyful obedience or feeling like dutiful obligation. Now, why is that? Because grace is the difference. If you try to earn God's love in any way, then you reject God's grace. Think about that. Grace is by definition what we don't deserve, which means God doesn't love us because we try to read our Bibles or because we attend Sunday services or because we have one of those little fish on the bumper of our car. Like the, that's not what convinces God to be like, you know what? This person's worth saving. They're trying really hard. I'm going to save them. No, that would be our effort, our earning. Grace says, despite your sin, despite your failure and rebellion, I'm going to magnify my love, my mercy, my grace and goodness by choosing to save those who do not deserve it. That's how our Christian life begins, so that we would say only God could save a sinner like me and only he would get glory. Well, what about grace? What's the role of grace after you are saved? We still cling to grace just as much in our sanctification, in our growth. How? Because we still know we fail, don't we? Even with the Holy Spirit abiding in us, we still fail. And in those moments of sin and struggle, we say, if it was not for the grace of God, I don't know where I would be. In those moments where you actually see growth, where you, you're getting up, and you're like, all right, I've read my Bible like the, for the past five days this week, and I had that spiritual conversation with my coworker, and I'm, you know, I'm learning how to give sacrificially. And use, when, whenever you find yourself in that moment, you don't say, great, 
I finally figured it out. No, you say, only the grace of God could transform a sinner like me and change my affections and desires for his glory. It is grace from start to finish being applied by faith in Christ through the Holy Spirit. Now, while we can often grasp the concept of grace with our heads, it takes a while for us to make it into our hearts. We're, we're constantly thinking, okay, yeah, but I know God loves me, but he probably loves me a little bit more whenever I'm like, you know, really consistent or, you know, checking all my religious boxes. But the moment that we begin acting like we earned God's grace, we empty it from being grace. That's what Paul has just said. If it's on the basis of works, grace is no longer grace. Let me give you kind of a scenario maybe to help, help you understand this from God's perspective. Let's say, if you're, so if you're not a parent in here, just imagine that you have a kid that's around like six or seven years old. Um, if you're a parent, think about your child at that age on their birthday, all right? So their, their birthday is coming, which is like such an exciting time as a parent, and you've kind of, you know, paid attention to all of their interests, what they're into, and then you like, you know, give them a, a gift or, you know, you, you give them these things that you just know they'll love. And you present them, you close your eyes, they open them, they see the gifts, and you're like, they're thrilled. Uh, so they're playing with it. Okay, well, now imagine later on in the day, you, you come into the, to the kitchen, and you hear, like, clanging of dishes. And you're like, that's kind of odd. And you could tell that the floor is wet, like it has been mopped. And you, you say to your kid, hey, what's up, bud? He says, well, I'm, I'm going to have these dishes clean uh, in the sink as, as soon as I can, and I mop the floor, and uh, I, I don't want you to take the gifts that you gave me away. And I know that I, know that I could never pay you back for them. I don't have any money in my account, and so I can't, I can't pay you back for them. They're too costly, but I know that I can keep working. Um, and, and just tell me, if, if I keep working, then maybe, maybe I can keep what you gave to me. Now, that conversation would be heartbreaking as a parent. Why? Because it gives you insight as to what that child believes about both the gift and the giver. Well, they don't view the gift as a gesture of love and generosity and, and sacrifice and care. They view that gift as something that has a lot of strings attached. It's almost created a burden for the child to even have this gift because now they feel like at any moment they could lose it and they're completely unstable as to what to actually think about this gift that they have. Should I not get too attached to it? Can it be taken away at any moment? Now, what does this show about what they believe about the giver? Uh, is, is the giver kind and benevolent? No, the giver of this gift has now become manipulative, demanding. Yeah, I gave this to you because these floors need to be clean, and those dishes sh shouldn't stay dirty. Now, that's tragic to think about a, a parent-child relationship like that. How, how much more tragic would it be for that kind of thinking to enter into our relationship with God? Well, then our relationship with God becomes more about our earning and effort than it does about magnifying Him for His undeserved grace, which is what Paul is talking about here. So how should we use, how should we think about God's grace? And perhaps this is going to be like, you're going too far. Hopefully so. Then you might, we might finally be understanding the power and the magnitude of God's grace if you feel like that. If I say something like, God loves you just as much on the days that you have an hour-long quiet time as he does on the days that your Bible stays completely closed. Why? Because God's love for you is based upon the finished work of Christ that was accomplished 2,000 years ago on your behalf and not your daily performance. Uncomfortable yet? 
God's grace says that God loves you just as much on the Sunday mornings that you sleep in and I don't see your face as he does whenever you're serving on setup team here at 6.30 a.m. Don't say that. We need people on setup team. (laughs) Ministry leader, God loves you just as much whenever you don't prepare like you should and you get there to the thing and nobody shows up as he does whenever you knock it out of the park and people are coming up to you asking for your autograph because you just taught the best children's lesson that has ever been taught in Little Oaks. Why is that? Because God's love for you is based upon his predetermined grace made known to you in Christ, not your personal performance and effort. But you knew I was going to qualify it. Can't have people just running off rampant, right? What do we know? That God's free grace changes your affections and desires, doesn't it? And so, yes, with God's grace, you are free to live however you want with freedom in Christ. But if you truly comprehend the grace of God, then you will do nothing more. You will long for nothing more than to live your entire life, every second of every day, for His glory. That's a change internally, transformation, and and not externally just conforming to, to some sort of rule or moral code that we've created for ourselves. God's grace is given not to be trampled. Let's, let's go back to the birthday illustration. If, if the child opens up the gift and they're looking smug, right? They get their birthday gift and they're like, that's pretty good. I hope there's more where this came come from. And they're like, yeah, you did pretty good. You did better last year, though, honestly. Like, you know, six years, six year birthday was peak, seven, not so hot. You know, you're like, wow, who are you? Um, now, what does that show about the giver and the gift? right? The gift, it's not valuable, earned, entitled, maybe not even lived up to the hype. What do they think about the, the giver? It's obligation, right? Giver, giver now serves the one who receives the gift. And if, and if we are to live a life of Christianity that says, saved by grace, don't need to spend time in God's word. Saved by grace, don't need to gather God's people, gather with God's people. Saved by grace, don't need to serve and, and use my gifts for the good of other. Then you have displayed that you don't fully understand the grace of God. Because the grace of God is the greatest motivator for growth in the Christian life. It changes your affections for the glory of God. And God's faithfulness to us begets our faithfulness to him. So, so what do we do with this, this whole, the whole point one? God is faithful to us. That's what we've just seen here through Paul, through the story of Elijah, through this being chosen by grace. What do we see here? Um, God's, God's faithfulness is a communicable attribute of God. So stay with me here. Uh, we being created in the image of God are able to emulate some of the attributes of God, and those are called communicable attributes. So uh, while we cannot ever emulate the incommunicable attribute of God's infinitude, we can emulate his communicable attributes like faithfulness. And so God's faithfulness to us then becomes a a motivator. It begets faithfulness to him. That's why one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is faithfulness, love, joy, peace, faithfulness, kindness, goodness, self-control. Now, 
that's helpful for us to, to understand because now we in our lives want to be faithful whenever it comes to God's word. That's why as a church, we have a statement of faith because we want our teachers, we want people who are a member of this church to say, yeah, I agree with what God's word teaches and it keeps us from error, or keeps us from you know, straying in different ways. It's why we have a church covenant for people who say, I, I want to be discipled as a part of this church, not to provide rules and regulations, but to provide helpful ways that each Christian can assess their faithfulness. To say, I, I am walking with God and being faithful as God is faithful. As God has been to us, may we be to him because he is faithful. Now, the second fact that I want you to see in this text is that God is faithful to forgive those who call upon him. God is faithful to forgive those who call upon him. As promised, this fact is way shorter, but there's still some really important things here that are worthy of our attention. In the next section, Paul is going to ask another question, and basically the gist of this question is, what then? If God has chosen by grace, if God is faithful to keep his promises, then why have the majority of Jews not become Christians? Well, verses 7 through 10 are the reasoning behind it. He says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Now, likely he is referring back here to Romans 9.31, where it says that for for most of the Jews during this time, they believed that salvation would be earned by their own efforts, by their religious law keeping, by trying to adhere to all the laws and regulations that were ultimately fulfilled in Christ, as he says in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and so they sought to make themselves righteous in that way, but it says they failed to obtain what they were seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Now, that word seeking is such an apt description of the Christian heart, isn't it? Because every single person, because Romans 2 tells us that we are convicted by our own conscience, because even the person who has never picked up a Bible knows there is something that's wrong with me, we're all seeking something. We're all seeking some way to have our guilt, our fear, our shame alleviated in this life. We're all seeking some way to better ourselves because we know that we are bad. Now, Here's the issue. None of us seek for God. That's what Romans 3.11 says. No one is good. No one seeks for God. So although we feel the problem, we don't seek the right thing. We don't seek the right one. We don't seek God. Now, what hope would we have in that situation? The fact that God seeks after us. God seeks after us even though we do not seek him. That's why the rest of Romans 7 says the elect obtained it. it like, if you were to to look at the way that this is worded, it says election obtained it. Like God has done for you what you could never do for yourself. And that's the glory of the gospel. Now, I, I, we, could, we could wrestle with this and say, well, the elect, like what does that mean? Um, here's, here's what we need to understand. That anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, repents of their sin and places their faith in Christ, they will be saved. And so, so if you're here right now, and you're feeling the conviction of sin, 
and you're, and you're considering Christ as Savior, and you're saying, I've been seeking and I need that, that's what it means to be chosen by God. For you to feel that conviction, to, for your heart by the Holy Spirit to be moved to repentance that grieves sin and to place your faith in Jesus Christ. And yet we also know that some people will hear the same message of Christ and they'll reject it. Their hearts are hardened to it. That's why Paul uses this language here. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. The, the good news of the gospel is bright and hot like the noonday sun. And whenever that sun shines upon wax, it becomes soft and malleable. But whenever that same blazing hot sun shines on clay, it becomes hard and impenetrable. And people that hear the gospel, you know this is true in your own life, every time someone hears the gospel, one of those two effects takes place. They're they're either softened to it, their hearts become open to it, because God in His grace and mercy is opening their hearts to it, He's drawing them, or they become hardened, they become impenetrable to this gospel message, and ultimately they reject the glory of God made known in Christ. I think we see a similar teaching in in Matthew 16, whenever Jesus asks His disciples, who do you say that I am? And then Peter responds, and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Only God could reveal this. And, and maybe, I know there's still hang-ups here, and I would say, if you really want to dive into this, listen to some of our sermons from Romans 9. But the question might be, is it unjust for God to save some, to have mercy on some and not all? And I would say, let's rephrase the question. It would be just for God to condemn all who have sinned against him. We all, eat, we all deserve eternal damnation in hell. The question is, how could a holy God be just and yet safe, welcome his former enemies into his family, only by upholding his holy judgment on the cross of Christ placing our penalty upon him and accrediting Christ's righteousness to us that we might be saved so that God being both just and merciful has displayed his grace to us. And so what happened to those in Paul's time? Well, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Uh, Paul here doesn't want the, the church to think that he's, you know, just kind of coming up with something new. So he's quoting Deuteronomy 29.4. He, he's, he's quoting Isaiah 29. He's saying that, that they're almost like, it's like sleeping through your alarm clock. There's a spirit of stupor. It's like they have eyes that can't see, ears that can't hear because they're rejecting the gospel. It's like if someone was to speak to you and to say, you know, the building's on fire, but they're saying it in another language and you don't know. It's like being handed a letter that's written in Hebrew or Arabic and you don't, you don't know how to read it. So it's like you have eyes, but they just can't see. You think that's how some of them are if they don't see that Christ is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. David says, look at verse 9, this is from Psalm 69, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. 
that language of the table is this, you know, is often your home, your table in your house. It's a place of security, familiarity. And what Paul is saying is the, the familiarity of uh, the religious customs and all that they had known through the Torah became a stumbling block to them because they didn't see Christ as the cornerstone because there's no way in their minds that the Messianic king could come from the town of Nazareth. Uh, there's no way the Messianic king would be crucified. Surely this is not how this would go. And for that reason, their eyes remained darkened. Their backs, as verse 10 says, was bent under their sin forever, the weight of their sin. Now, what does this have to do with you? It's a tragic thing, as we see in this passage, Romans 10, 21. God's held out his hands to a disobedient people. It is a tragic thing to witness God's faithfulness for generations and never acknowledge him as redeemer and king. Never give your life to him as a Christian. To experience God's daily faithfulness and yet not follow Christ as he's worthy to be followed. No, maybe you haven't experienced the, the same faithfulness of uh, the wilderness generation that saw God part the Red Sea, but you have breath in your lungs, a roof over your head, food on your table. Even more than that, God has sent his only son for you. If you've experienced his faithfulness in this way, would you respond by placing your faith in him? Because he has held out his nail-scarred hands for you. And what we find in this passage is that those who saw these promises from afar had them fulfilled in their time and yet refused to believe are a picture of us all. Because what took place? By rejecting God, by any, anyone who rejects God has made themselves an enemy of God. And yet, there is still grace at being in enmity toward God and being an enemy of God because Romans 5.10 says, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? We were all enemies. And yet God has reconciled us through his son to display his faithfulness in the fulfillment of Christ. You know, I didn't finish my story from earlier. Uh, I called our travel agent really quick on Sunday night. And she acted really fast, got us on a, uh, on a flight the next morning. And within 24 hours, we were sitting on the beach in Montego Bay, Jamaica, and we made it. I finally kept my promise. I was a faithful husband, keeping my promise to take my wife back to the same place that we went on our honeymoon. And, you know, it's funny being back in, some, in a place that you weren't for 10 years, and, you know, we just kind of talked about the, the past 10 years, and when we were there 10 years earlier, we were just kids. We had no idea what, what God was going to do in our marriage and our lives, and uh, there were, you know, we, we reflected on a, a church that God had, had built that had some really uncertain days, and we weren't sure if it was going to make it. We reflected on the two great boys that God had given us, um, health scares that he preserved us through, and, you know, as we reflected on God's faithfulness, we were reminded that when we wait, there's not futility in the waiting because it serves to magnify the faithfulness of God displayed to us in our lives. That God is faithful to us. And his faithful promises were ultimately fulfilled in Christ who had come 
lived the life we should have lived, died the death that we should have died on the cross, and was raised again to life. You see, whenever Joshua was standing in the promised land that, that was promised to his fathers before him, he spoke these words. He said, and now I am about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God has promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. And Christian, in the same way, one day, you will stand with your feet firmly planted in the celestial city of heaven. In the presence of God, in the presence of Christ your Savior, and you will be able to say with great confidence, not a single word of my God failed. God's word cannot fail because the word who was God cannot fail. Christ has bought you with his own blood, and he has staked his own reputation to preserving you to the end. So may, may we be faithful to him as he has been to us. Let's pray.